Well, you know, if we're honest, Christians are a little bit strange, aren't they? There's, they're not silly. They're not uh, irrelevant. But some of the things we believe and do could appear very strange. And in a non-Christian culture, which we are surrounded by, some of our beliefs and practices could, could not just appear silly, they could appear very offensive or, or just uh, it, like we're ignorant or out of touch or very irrelevant. So the question to think about today is, what should we do when our faith feels silly? Maybe it feels silly to them. They're looking and they just don't understand it feels silly. And maybe even there's pieces of our faith and practice that, that seem silly to us. Um, another verse in 1 Corinthians, in addition to what was read, is on the screen right here. And it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same message, same word, same belief. And to one, it looks just silly. And the other, it's like life-giving stuff that could, could, you could give your whole self to. Same thing, totally different perspective. So what do we do when our faith feels silly? Let's pray and let's think about this. Father in heaven, we know it is not silly. But our world might tell us that. And I pray today that you would pour out your spirit in a special way to remind us of the meaning that makes all of this so important. Lord, we're going to take communion today. and We're going to take a physical act that it has deep spiritual significance. I pray that it would be powerful in our lives, that the message of the cross could touch us. And we need that in various ways. There are people who are tired, people who are confused, people who, who need reminded of your love and grace. And I pray that you do that far beyond my ability to speak, that this could be a holy moment. We've come to meet with you. And we're reminded that there is a Holy Spirit who wants to fill us, fill us and give holiness in our lives and we pursue that now. We lay down the things that keep us from that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm in a class right now studying um, with Andrews, and one of the classes I'm in is church history. And church history is fun because it's stories, lots of stories. Uh, a lot of people arguing about God for centuries, but I've one of my assignments is to read through some books. And it, this is interesting because I actually read through this book in my undergraduate degree. So I had it on my shelf and I still have all the underlines. As I was reading through, I think last week, um, came to the second century Christianity. And second century Christianity was a heavily persecuted church. Their practice, <laughs> rather than, you know, starting a, a school or doing some of these things we do, um, they would have meetings training their members, their children, their people, how to prepare for martyrdom. That was kind of the practice of the church is we want to live well and represent Christ and we want to die well because the Roman Empire, as different emperors would rise to power, they would have various levels of aggression against this 
Christian group, and waves of persecution would come. And one of the things they used for persecution was false accusations. And you're familiar with the story of Nero early on. There's this fire in Rome, and the accusation, the blame for the fire, gets put on Christians. Because if you're persecuting them, it's helpful to get social buy-in by having an accusation against these people. Well, other emperors came along and added to the accusations. And some of these were just gossip, you know, just crazy stories about this group of Christians that they maybe had a little piece of, of truth and they embellished it. And others were very sophisticated attacks on the dangers of their theology and their practice. So some of those, even though it's a huge spectrum of attacks, came in the form of saying that these Christian people, they are ignorant, they're really not smart people. Their teachers are of the lowest intellectual status. In fact, this church welcomes women and children and gives them a high level value in their church, which to them was evidence that these people that they saw as low were the only type of people who would actually have the, the watered-down mental capacity to accept such a message. These are low-status people, and they look at them welcoming slaves and say, look at this church. They, they can't even attract quality, high-status people. So this is one of the accusations against the church. Those people are not smart. They are low-status and maybe you feel some of that today when people start talking about science and these ignorant Christians. and They're just low status, a low status group. Well, it was a false accusation. It is not true. You're not dumb to be a Christian. Another accusation that came in is not just that they were low status, but that they were a subversive group. These people are unruly. Well, they, they did some things that got that accusation, like they did not except the divinity of the emperor. So that was kind of a big deal. If, if your empire worships the emperor and these people don't accept that, then this group is subversive and they're, they're enemies of the empire. And then they also were, you may know that Christ, early Christians were considered atheists. Doesn't that seem backwards? But they're considered atheists because they believed in one God rather than many gods. And so since they did not believe in all these Roman gods, they, they were told, you know, the message went out that bad things may happen to you, pagans, because these Christians are offending your God. They're rejecting your God. So there's a lot of blame put on them for their subversiveness. And then they also looked at this group, you know, ignorant, subversive, and they saw in them a lot of danger. This, this group was a, a group of people who had mystery. They didn't understand it. And they had uh, practices that were just for them, and they weren't, people in, the, in society could only look in and wonder what is going on. So they were an offensive group, like the Lord's Supper, a practice that became gossip about this group that was cannibalistic. And, and they valued blood and death. And really, it was a beautiful practice, but it became something dark in, in society. They had this beautiful expression of love in an agape feast. But the gossip about that was that there was perverted communal lust in Christian circles. So all these practices that were really godly were misrepresented in society. So not only were they 
a group of people who were out of touch intellectually. They were subversive, and they were really just offensive people. And so these are really easy accusations that people buy into them to convince society that these people who are persecuted deserve persecution. So it was a rough time for the early church. So what do you do when your faith seems silly? We don't live right now in America with that type of persecution, but there's people who look at us and just say, those Christians, they're so out of touch. So how do you respond when, when that's the impression? You're just a silly group. Well, there were a group of people who did something about it, and I think we, as in our heritage, owe something to those who were bold enough to speak on these things. So there's a group called the Greek Apologists, and apology is, is not to say, I'm sorry. They were not apologizing for their faith. The work of apologetics is to give a defense for what you believe. So they wrote in defense of the reasonableness of Christianity. We have good people doing work in apologetics today, but these were mid-2nd century apologetics, and the writers that we know of today, history knows them as the Greek apologists. And some of them had very uh, detailed defenses of why we believe this about God or why we do this practice. Um, and what they did is they said, you're persecuting us for this, but we have a reason behind what we're doing. Now, sometimes that gained acceptance, sometimes it didn't, but they were saying, whatever you think about our faith and practice, we know that it's worth dying for because there's significance behind it. So what do you do when your faith seems silly? What we can do is we can remember why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do and we can point to the spiritual realities behind the doctrine and the practice. And the thing that once seems silly becomes very sacred. It becomes something that I, I would die for. Not because it's just a practice, but because there's spiritual significance behind that practice. Is there something you believe today or something you do in your faith and practice that you need to be reminded of the significance behind it? Why do you come to church on Saturday morning? Why do you take time for prayer in your day? It's not just a practice that could become silly when you forget about why, why you do it, but there is significant spiritual reality behind those things. Because really, prayer could seem pretty silly. Last night I was at our fair booth and got a chance to pray with someone who I just met, you know, 20 minutes into a conversation, we prayed. And if there's no spiritual reality behind that, standing with my head bowed and my, and my eyes closed with something, someone I just met, a couple adults speaking to someone you can't see, that seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Prayer is silly unless there's a God who's hearing and caring and acting and then it's not silly anymore. It is a powerful, wonderful thing. See, the message across is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved, it's power. Uh, attending church, you know, you could stay in your pajamas, you could sleep in, you could not come. It's kind of silly to give that much time, unless this is really a community of people in Christ, like that the Holy Spirit is poured out on this community to bring life change to us and people around us. If we actually believe that, then coming to church is not silly at all. Foot washing. Anyone ever come into an Adventist church and think, that's kind of silly? It's kind of strange, isn't it? 
to see people washing feet in our modern day, that could be a very silly thing unless it's an act that could humble our hearts and make us serve others. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to take today, you know, juice and, and some bread, could be very silly. Unless it is representing the power of God who died that we might live. There's a whole bunch of things like mission trips. So right out here we have some signs and every other day of the week we let people come back here and park for a fee so that we can support a mission trip. Mission trips are kind of silly if you think of them as, well, I could just stay and work in America at my job and send money and probably more could be done by the work I did here. Then you think, oh, that's kind of silly. But if there's a real need met and it actually changes my life to go, then it's not silly anymore. Giving tithes and offerings. Uh, there's a lot of things you could spend your money on. That's kind of a silly thing. Unless you believe that there's a spiritual mission here that's more important than your material mission. Something bigger. So the, the spiritual reality behind it is what we need to remember. I don't know if I do well enough at that. I don't know if I do well enough at reminding myself of the true spiritual reality behind each thing I do. Preaching <laughs> could be kind of silly. But I believe there's a spiritual reality happening right now that God, through the Holy Spirit, is actually using human words to communicate his message. And then it's not silly anymore. There was one apologist. I'm going to read a bit here. There's one apologist who took a very different tone. So this is from the Greek apologist. A lot of them uh, gave critiques of paganism and they you know, spoke kind of boldly, maybe even hot-headedly about Christianity. Uh, this one took a very careful, loving tone. And I'm going to read a full, big paragraph from the epistle of Diognetus. Diognetus. And um, I want you to hear how he's saying, this is not silly. It's strange. You see this and you think, these people are weird. But he's saying, it's not silly, it's actually very beautiful. And I hope that we can see ourselves in this way. It says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor custom, which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow is not, has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any mere human doctrine, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot to each of them has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. I'm going to continue, but what he's saying is, we aren't just weird to be weird. We do the things you do, except we display in them a strikingly different method of life. In every other way that we can be like you, we are. But there's some things that are strange, and they're intentionally so. It says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land to them is their native country, and every land of their birth 
is a land of strangers. They marry, as do others, and beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are not citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the law by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they're glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay that insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened unto life, and they are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Saying it's okay if we're strange, it's okay if we're different, because we think there's something so significant, a different way of living, a different practice of life, that we're willing for you to look at us and say, those people are weird, because we think that is special. So here's the deal. Don't try to be a weird Christian. There's enough weird about us. Don't try to be weird, but also don't try not to be weird. Don't alter the way you live just because someone else says, that's strange. If God has called us to a standard of living, we should not feel a burden to try not to live that way. It's not silly. It's sacred. It's beautiful. It's something with meaning. So if you ever feel less than or inferior because of your Christian belief or practice, you are not. You are not silly for believing in a loving God and living the way he's called you to live. So we're going to consider the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Just highlight a few things that could be very silly, unless there's some deep spiritual realities. We're going to see four spiritual realities in these things. I'm going to read that text. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. This is Paul reviewing this and reiterating that this practice has deep spiritual meaning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup of the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hey, I want to invite you to take um, that bread and juice. It's going to be a few minutes before we partake of it. Uh, If you didn't get it, raise your hand. It was uh, was in some containers on the way in, um, but there are some people ready to hand you some. So if you just keep your hand up if you don't have one. And as I talk, um, just, just give it a minute. Um, keep your hand up, and it'll come to you. And we're not going to be opening them right away. So you have time. Just raise your hand. And also invite some elders up here with me as we reflect on the bread and the juice. I want to highlight four things from the text. 
If you have 1 Corinthians 11 open, the Lord's Supper is not silly, but sacred because it is a reminder of Jesus. Did you hear that twice in the text? Do this in remembrance of me. So anything that can point our thoughts to Jesus is not a silly thing. So as you hold the bread and the juice, you can look at them and think, these things are significant because they remind me of Jesus. Let them remind you of Jesus. Maybe a specific, specific attribute of Jesus, his grace, his love, whatever it is that you need to be reminded of Jesus, the Lord's Supper is intended to do that, to remember Jesus. And it's also intended to invite us into the new covenant. In the second part, he says, this is the blood, this juice is, is the blood of the new covenant. You're familiar with the concept of new covenant? God made promises in the old covenant, and they were good, and he kept them. But because of the cross, he's made better promises, and he's keeping those too. So we have greater intimacy with God open to us through a new covenant. So as you hold the bread and the juice, you can think, I want to step into the realities of a new covenant, of a, of a God who lives in me, whose, whose law he's put in my heart. There's significance behind this because it's an invitation to that deeper new covenant walk with Christ. And the whole illustration speaks of death. So this Lord's Supper is not silly, but significant because it speaks of the death of Jesus which could seem very silly or even just gross. Like the things we're holding are represent a broken body and blood. That's kind of graphic. The death of Jesus is not about being barbaric. It's actually all about the very opposite thing, life. The death is about life. I'm just going to read a few passages from John chapter 6. And there was a very hard conversation Jesus had about his body. He said, I'm the bread from heaven. And they didn't like that. They said, this is not an image or an illustration we like very much. It's kind of gross. And Jesus was very persistent at it. So I'm just reading from John chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 50 through 60. And notice in it the pushback and the difficulty people had with this illustration. But over and over again, Jesus points to his death and our partaking of it as life. The whole point of the death is life. So this is John chapter 6, verse 50 through 60. It says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. See, the death is about life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, it was hard. It was, it was strange and gross, maybe even silly. But then Jesus says in verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the Son of Man has, and drink my blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last days. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and eats and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, 
he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said to those these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And then one more verse, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? From the very earliest of times, image of blood and body were offensive to people. And all the way through this very time, people have argued of theories of the atonement and said, you know this, this death stuff. We really need to get this out of here. Well, Jesus doesn't talk about it to dwell in death. He, he brings it to us because he wants us to enter into life. Does he hold the body and the blood? This isn't gory. This is hopeful. See, the wages of sin is death. We deserve that. Christ did it. He went there because we earned death and he wanted us to live. So as you hold the bread and the juice, think, Jesus died so I could live. I am taking part in these graphic emblems because they give eternal life to someone who earned death. That is a powerful gospel. And don't let it appear silly to you today. Don't let it appear just this old stuff. Why do we do this anymore? That is a God who loved us so much that he said, I'm going to die to show them that I will justly forgive their sins by taking them upon myself. And finally, a fourth point of significance. You notice the last line that we read in 1 Corinthians. It says, in doing this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you hold the bread and the juice, you are looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. So there's significance behind this. You're saying, Jesus, right now these are symbols, but you will come in glorified form where we will enjoy you forever, and you're coming soon. Have you looked at the world around you? I think Jesus is going to come back real soon. I think he's coming back for us, and we can celebrate these realities uh, when we see him face to face. He says in Matthew, he said, I'm not going to drink this, this fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. Like we get to have a Lord's Supper with the Lord after all this is over. So I invite you to see the spiritual realities behind the things you hold in your hand right now. Christianity, our faith and our practice, they're not silly. They're sacred. So we're going to take those things with, with just a renewed focus on the significance behind them. We have an awesome God who loved you that much. And today we're just physically going to renew our appreciation and our acceptance of these things. So go ahead and take that bread. And I've asked Tom, one of our elders here, to have a prayer of dedication as we um, take the symbol of Christ's body and receive his sacrifice for us. Would you lead us in that prayer, Tom? Heavenly, Fa Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son as the bread of life for us. There's so much we have to be thankful for here living in a wonderful state of Alaska with food to eat on a daily basis and clean air. But there's so much more in a world that we know 
is not meant to be our eternal home. We know that you are building a better place for us, or done that already, and that you will come again to take us to be with you. Just as you provided bread on a daily basis to save those of your people in the wilderness, we live in the wilderness now. We live in a, a dark world, but we know that through clinging to your son Jesus and the promise of, your, of his soon return, that we will be saved. And Father, that while we look at this bread as a symbol of what he has done for us, we gladly embrace taking this bread in remembrance of the love and the sacrifice and the only way to true salvation through him. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll reflect on the words of Jesus as he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. going to have uh, Matt, another one of our elders here, lead us in a prayer for the juice. Heavenly Father, as we take a small sample of something that looks forward to a time when we can gather together and sit down at a table with you and be served juice that you have crushed yourself. We look forward to that. I just ask that as we move through this world that we will keep our eyes fixed on you and know that that seat at the table is reserved in faith. And that we will have that opportunity to drink with you. Amen. Amen. This is the juice of the blood of the new covenant for you. Take and drink. Hope you are feeling some of the significance of what we just have done. And also the individuality that this was in your hands and you took it into you because when Christ died, it was for you. <laughs> we are individually loved and saved by our Savior. So we can leave here just with that amazing, awesome assurance of grace, that we have a God who, who gave everything so that nothing could keep us from him. And we're going we're gonna to end our service with a song of reflection. I invite you to take your thoughts and commitments to God in prayer, then a benediction. We normally, um, very traditionally, have a time of foot washing in our service, and we are not doing that today, trying to stay sensitive and, and cautious with some of the um, COVID things remaining. But I invite you, 
Jesus did that as an example. Find a place in time in, in the privacy of your own home or with a uh, friend or loved one. Humble yourself and wash their feet. And we will look forward to doing that again together here. And um, take this time as, as prayer time as you listen to these words, and we'll close with the benediction.